Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 in your Bibles. Comfort ye my people. Today I'm going to go in a bit of a different direction and preach a topical message from the Old Testament. It is perhaps a selfish message, one which uh, I need today, and so I purpose it in my heart and in my study to find it, and in finding it, I now present it to you out of the abundance of my comfort. Isaiah is the first of the prophetic books in our Bible. He was a great prophet whose ministry spanned numerous kings. The prophet spoke of coming judgment, calling the people to find hope in God through mercy and repentance. And this would be the essence of Isaiah's ministry. Now, I direct your attention today in this hour of uncertainty and culture and upheaval to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 marks the second major division of the prophecies of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters are local and temporal in reference, speaking to the nature of the nation, its sin, and its deliverance in the day and in the hour of Isaiah's ministry itself. Beginning in chapter 40, however, the eyes of Isaiah turn well beyond the cares of the day and look toward the fullest deliverance found in the days of Messiah's reign upon the earth. Now, to this end, chapter 40 is a chapter of comfort, but the comfort here is unique. It's not comfort to a physical nation trying to make them know that everything's going to be all right in their day. Much to the contrary, it's a comfort that transcends physical nations, physical cultures, physical circumstances. Isaiah sees beyond the events of Israel's history, their success and their failure as a nation and as a culture, and sees the day when God will right every wrong, when God will make all things right. In the times of national distress, God called the eyes of his people to look beyond nations beyond cultures, and to see a greater plan. Because this is where comfort truly rests. And this is not just where Israel would find it, but where we find it as well. Looking in Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The chapter begins with a thematic bridge, a, a proposition statement undergirding the purposes of Isaiah's proclamation. Comfort ye, twice repeated, giving double assurance of God's intent through these words. Hebrew does not have what we in our language call uh, superlatives to add emphasis. Things like good, better, best. Many, more, most. The Hebrew language added emphasis through repetition. Holy, 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 we find in Isaiah 6. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, we find here in Isaiah 40. So we expect this message to be one, in fact, of great comfort to the people of God. And so Isaiah looks forward to the day when Jerusalem's warfare is accomplished, when the battles are done, when the fighting is over, when her iniquity is pardoned, and when the nation has received of the Lord double for her sins. 
There's coming a day when Israel's chastening would be over, where God's purposes would be accomplished and where they would return to him in full. They are, in fact, still in that period of chastening until the day when they accept their Messiah. So we read in verses 3 through 5, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Isaiah's eyes then turn to the foundation of this deliverance, a sure sign to Israel that it was on its way. A clear voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. A prophetic call to be ready for the glory of the Lord which would come, that would exalt every valley, abase every mountain, straighten every crooked place, and smooth every rough place. In other words, every obstacle, every barrier removed. And this glory of the Lord would be revealed. Flesh would see it. Of course, we see that this is speaking of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And recall, there is no indication in the, two, uh, in the Old Testament excuse me, of the two advents of Messiah. As the Old Testament presents Messiah, it presents it in one coherent message, right? The coming of Messiah in one coherent message. But as we recognize uh, through, through Scripture and through the, the interpretation of, the, of, of the, the Word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit, we actually do see Jesus Christ coming in two advents. So in Joel chapter 2, we see a promise. We see a promise of the day of Pentecost roll right into the events of Revelation chapter 6. Now thus far, those events have been spanned by 2,000 years, but it takes up only a couple of verses in the Bible with no bridge in between. So in Daniel chapter 9, we see the 70 weeks of Israel, and we see the first 69 weeks work contiguously, but then between the 69th and the 70th week, we have been waiting some 2,000 years. We see this happen regularly in prophecy. And take note of that here, that there is no distinguishing, as Isaiah gives this prophecy, between the first advent of our Lord and the second advent of our Lord. Though Old Testament never directly distinguishes between the two, one of the mysteries that is revealed in the New Testament is this unique two-advent reality of Messiah, where in his first advent he came for the sure redemption and, and to secure the redemption of mankind, and then in the second return, that time he would bring judgment, justice, and restoration to the world. And this blurring between the advents is actually featured quite prominently here in Isaiah 40. We see in verses 3 through 5 a revelation of the forerunner of Messiah, who we know would be John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, Luke quotes this specific passage in Isaiah 40 in Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, in connection with John's ministry in the wilderness. And so we see this voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, and this is relating itself to Jesus' first advent, to his coming to save mankind of their, from their sins. But then Isaiah looks immediately forward to the glory of the Lord in the fullest revel revel uh, revelation, excuse me, which will be manifest in his sure second return. And as Isaiah describes this voice crying in the wilderness in preparation for the glory of the Lord to appear, this voice asks a question in verse 6, which the Lord then answers. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? 
All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. What should I cry, the voice asks. What should I cry? To which God paints a contrast between the temporal nature of the people and things of this earth and the eternal nature of the Lord, of His glory, of His word, and of His promises. Cry this, all flesh is grass. It's all going to fade away. And this is the point of God's message here. To help us orient our minds properly to what he's about to say. God is speaking on the level of the eternal here, not the temporal. He isn't speaking about saving people's lives physically or saving the fate of nations through kings and through emperors. He is looking beyond such temporal and to that end, trivial matters and considering something eternal. All flesh is grass. All goodliness of flesh like the flowers of the field. We're here in November. The grass is browning. The leaves are falling. The flowers have died this year, at least. The beauty of these things fade. But the word of God is forever. Does not fade. Will not fade. Cannot be contended against. Cannot be thwarted. Will not be broken. And this is the context. This is what God is talking about. This is what everything in Isaiah 40 is going to be about. And this is the message of comfort. Say, well, pastor, all things fade. All things crumble. All things are destroyed. The, 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 the Spirit of the Lord breathes upon these things and they wither. How is that comfort? Well, because we're on the Lord's side. Right? Well, because that eternity unto which God looks, where all things are made new, where righteousness is established, we can be a part of that. That's the invitation. The Word of God is forever. The events of these promises are in view as we continue in verses 9 through 11. O Zion, that bring us good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Uh, uh, um, rule for him. Excuse me. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with, uh, that are with young. So within the context of the eternal, Within the context of the transcendent, the promise is of a God who, in the midst of all of these things, will take away the fears of his people. Be not afraid. That's what God says. Be not afraid. He will come and deliver with a strong hand. He says his reward is with those who love him. And this links the context of these events not to Jesus' first advent, but actually to Jesus' second advent, where in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to as his work shall be. And so we see this link, this prophetic link between Isaiah 40 and Revelation 22, 
showing that as Jesus speaks of this reward, as the Lord speaks of this reward, we are now being linked to his second advent. And this is the day. This promised one who is coming will feed his flock, will gather his lambs, will gently lead his own. A day of peace, a day of safety, a day of comfort. Now in verse 12, there's a very strong tonal shift that takes place. We've already seen the eternal nature of these promises and the declaration of the voice crying in the wilderness, all flesh is grass and will wither. This is a personal consideration of the eternal future of those who love God as compared to the temporal nature of the world as it stands right now. The eternal future of those who love God as lambs to the shepherd contrasted with the temporal glory of men on this earth. Now God returns to this contrast between the temporal and the eternal in verse 12, and so we see this tonal shift. But as it relates to his glory and the glory of nations this time, rather than individuals, now we see nations, verses 12 through 14. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out the heavens with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him with whom took he counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Verses 12 through 14 ask a series of questions. These series of questions are intended to magnify the greatness and the holiness, uh, the supremacy of the Lord, of God's vastness and might. A series of metaphor metaphorical questions is asked. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and meted out the heavens with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. These questions speak to the grandeur of our God. We know that God is, is a spirit. And so we see these metaphors, this poetic picture in an attempt to help us understand God's greatness. If you've been to the ocean, and you look out upon that vast plain of water, or perhaps you've gone uh, to the Pacific where the waves are, are strong and you see those waves crashing against the rocks, and you think of the might and the power of that water. Go to Yellowstone and you see some of those waterfalls and you can feel the rush, the, the intensity of the power of that water. And God says, who has held those waters in the hollow of his hand? who's meted out the, uh, the worlds with a span. It's not, 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 it's not this span. In the Hebrew, it's this span. Tip to tip of the fingers. All of the created universe right there to God. From thumb to pinky. The greatness of our God. Who knows and weighs the dust of the earth? The mountains in the hills, the mountains being placed on scales. Think of the greatness, the grandeur, the beauty, the majesty, the imposing nature of mountains. This is particularly, I grew up in Colorado. This is particularly true out there because you go from flat plains to huge mountains. When I, whenever I traveled when I was younger and I was, I was used to living in Colorado, I'd always lose direction because, see, it's really easy to know where you're going in Colorado, which way is west. 
Look for the big mountains jutting out of nothing. Huge mountains, you always know which direction you're going because the mountains are always there and you can always see them. God's taken those mountains and he, he, he can just put them on a scale, measure them, right? Metaphorically, allegorically. The grandeur, the greatness of our God. Now think about that. Now think about that as it relates to circumstances. Think about that as it relates to world events. Think about that as it relates to the things which we call big. What we call big is not big to God. These epochs of history are points on a timeline for God. He stands above it. He stands beyond it. He sees it. I'm not saying he doesn't care. I'm saying his greatness transcends it. And if you've ever looked at the grandeur of the world, both either large or small, said grandeur pales in comparison in every conceivable way to the majesty, the grandeur, the awesomeness of God and of his power. Now the next question is in verses 13 and 14. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord? Who has counseled him? Who has taught him? Taking his majesty and now, and now adding to that his wisdom. When men devote their lives to searching out wisdom, understanding, knowledge, when men comprehend just how little they have yet discovered of the mysteries of this universe, it is then that we are compelled to acknowledge that a man can spend his life, that humanity can spend multiple generations now in this age of information, building up information, building information upon information in order to, to, to get to the deeper things of this universe. And it was the wisdom of God, not just that knows those things, but that put them there to begin with. All man is doing is discovering the, uh, the overflow of the abundance of God's wisdom. And we haven't even scratched the surface. And so who's directed the spirit of the Lord? Who has counseled him? Who has taught him? When men discover great technological advancements, internal combustion, electricity, magnetism, it's not simply that these things are known to God. The wisdom of God established these laws and put these mechanisms there to begin with. It's one thing for man to discover these great wonders and principles. And it's another thing to realize that God created them out of his wisdom. When this perspective is in place, God then turns our minds toward the greatest things that man has accomplished. The greatness of man, which is comprehended in nations. Verses 15 through 17, behold the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient to burn for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing. And vanity. The nations are as a drop of a bucket. The majesty of Babylon, the greatness of Rome, the vast wealth of the British Empire upon which the sun never set, the tremendous strength of the United States of America. 
very little to God. Vanity and less than vanity. Verse 16 says, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. Lebanon was home to the great cedars, the cedars by which Solomon built his house. Some of the greatest trees, they were well known for being extremely strong. Some of them 150 feet high and 8 feet in diameter. And these cedars of Lebanon would grow. Then he says, the beasts are not sufficient for a burnt offering. No amount of burnt offering, no amount of wood, not even all the cedars of Lebanon, no amount of animals to put, that, to put upon that wood would be sufficient offering as a satisfaction to God's holiness when confronted with the slightness of man. All the nations before God are negligible. Emptiness, less than nothing. Again, we're not speaking of God's care for individuals here. For God so loved the world. You, you don't have to doubt God's love for you. He sent his son to die for you. You don't have to doubt his love for you. We're talking about his greatness, grandeur, and wisdom when compared to the best that man has to offer. Men come together to build monuments unto their glory, and God shrugs. So that's all the glory of man is. Isaiah is looking on a grand scale here. We trace history through nations. Even prophecy is traced, specifically in the book of Daniel, through four nations, right? All of history is traced through nations, epochs. These represent the climaxes of mankind's greatness. We talk about the seven ancient wonders of the world, right? Hanging Gardens of Babylon, Pyramids, Library of Alexandria. We think of the amazing things that man has built with his hands. How did, those col how did the Colosseum get built before, <laughs> before you had mechanics and, and, and machinery and industry? What an amazing feat. We think of the things that can be done today, the number of transistors that can be put on this little piece of silicon that can run everything in the world. It's incredible. But it's so very little. Our greatness is comprehended in monuments built by strong and rich nations as testimonies to their power, their grandeur, and their majesty. But you know what's interesting about those nations? They're gone. They're gone. And so we marvel at the genius of man who can create such things, both great and small, which our minds can hardly even conceive. And it's not just that these great nations, these vast armies, these ineffable strengths pale in comparison to the wisdom and the power and the majesty and the greatness of our God, but much more than that, these great nations and these great civilizations, these great accomplishments are not even worth mentioning when we contemplate the concept of greatness. Because God has a corner on that market. We speak of man landing on the moon. God created that moon. We think of the supremacy of our founding documents as a triumph of humanitarian achievement, built upon principles going back to the Magna Carta and the triumph of law, of principle in those documents. And it was a triumph. And all of these achievements were, anything that they achieved was only to the degree that they sought to mimic in the smallest 
and weakest way possible the character of God. The design of God, right? Their greatness is only found in the degree to which they aligned even as a shadow with God, with God's principles. So then Isaiah writes, verses 18 through 24, To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith uh, spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. He shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as the stubble. If God cannot be likened to man's greatest achievements, if even the grandeur of nations and the accomplishment of these nations is insufficient, then to whom will we liken God? And now Isaiah brings in a measure of rebuke. Is it really enough for a man to fashion an image and overlay it with gold? If the greatest monuments of the greatest civilizations on earth are nothing compared to God's majesty, then what are we doing carving images and overlaying them with gold? What is that? What is that to God? What is that compared to him? What then is the value of fashioning this image? How can this in any conceivable way liken itself to God? How can we in any conceivable way put any sort of ideology or any government system, or any individual person, and put him in the place of God, and think that in that man, or in that system, or in that ideology is some measure of glory when compared to God. We live in a world of idols. In our society, these idols are not necessarily of stone. These idols are people, politics, ideologies, all of them backed, of course, by the prince of the power of the air, How insufficient. How insufficient are all of these men in these systems to God? They're not even comparable. Are we comparing them? Are we comparing them in priority? Are we comparing them in outlook? Isaiah said here, men who don't have the money to fashion an idol and overlay it to gold will simply find the wood that's least likely to rot, and they'll make it out of that. How foolish are we when there's a God that sits upon the circle of the earth and our eyes are facing forward instead of upward. We're putting our life and our priorities and our intentions and our fears and our worries and our anxieties and our, 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 everything into this 
when there's that? Have we not known? Have we not heard? Do we not know? Do we not understand? The Lord sits above the earth in power and majesty. He stretches out the heavens and spreads them as a tent. He brings princes to nothing. The judges of the earth are inconsequential to him. The Supreme Court makes a ruling, God shrugs. Law gets passed, God shrugs. What is that to God? What is that to him? Scores of great men have exalted themselves above God, have declared God superfluous, have reasoned him away, and they're gone and he's still here. None of this has moved him. What should he care what the great men of the earth say? What defines their greatness? But that which to God is vanity and nothingness. So much so that they often fail to remember that the very God that they might seek to elevate themselves above is the one who created them. And as with all things, so too with these men, these kings, these judges, these nations, they will fade as grass, as the flower of the field. They will blow away and their remembrance will be gone forever. Yesterday was a nicer day. I got out and chopped up some leaves in my yard and then we had a wind blowing through here like crazy last night. Leaves are gone. They were there, now they're gone. Poof, just like that. Those are the judges of the earth. Those are the kings of the earth. Those are the great men of the earth. Those are the nations of the earth. God blows, one wind comes by, they're gone. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't live in this world. What we're called to do, though, is have perspective. Perspective. God still remains constant, unmovable, sitting above the earth, untouched, not in heart, but in power, in grandeur, in wisdom, in might, in intent. The final part of this argument is in verses 25 and 26. To whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal? Saith the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. See this God who stands above all things. Know his majesty and his glory. Consider his absolute superiority to all things men and their inventions might possibly have to offer and stand in awe. And when once we do, we might do as the psalmist exhorts us in Psalm 4.4, stand in awe and sin not. And this carries us into the application section of Isaiah 40, which we read in verses 27 to 31. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. 
But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. It's time to gain in this moment one more bit of perspective. Remember, this chapter began by contemplating the voice crying in the wilderness in preparation for the glory of the Lord to appear unto men. When at once we realize the absolute greatness of our God, when at once we fathom his absolute grandeur and separation from the vanity of man and all of our accomplishments, we can then appreciate all the more the significance of God becoming flesh. Think about this with me. God the God who sits on the circle of the earth, the God who is this greatness, enters into our fragility, enters into our vanity. And that for one and only one reason, so that we could come to him, so that we could be accessible to that God. He came to us so that we could come to him. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 7 and 8, the prophet spoke of the promise of Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Imagine that. That the God who sits on the circle of the earth, who holds the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand, who meets out the heavens with a span, loves you individually and personally so much he has sought with every ounce of his holy being to have a personal relationship with you to such an extent that he would take on this flesh to die on the cross to do for you what you could not do for yourself. There's a contrast at the beginning of Isaiah 40 and the end of Isaiah 40. The greatness of God is intended to remind us that the nations of this earth, that the epochs of history are but a blip on the radar to the greatness of our God, and yet to remember as well that God gives power to the faint. To them that have no might, he increases strength. That they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Verse 27 God reminds us that there is nothing hid from him. You can't fool him. If he sits above all of this, if he sits beyond all of this, you can't fool him. You can't fool God saying, God, I'm yours while your priorities are false. You can't pretend as though you have come to the finished work, through the finished work of Jesus Christ to the Father when you haven't. You can't pretend to be one of his children. It doesn't work that way. You can't fool him. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest thou, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Why would you say that when you know who God is? God sees. God knows you. God knows your heart. God knows exactly what's going on. You cannot fool him. You can't manipulate his favor and his good graces. You cannot manipulate his purposes. Now, my hope is not in convincing God or twisting God to my thinking or my purposes or even the purposes of the nations. The only hope for any man, the only hope for any nation is to align with the will of the God who is greater than all. I cannot fool him. My only hope is to align with him. 
submission, alignment, obedience. These are the tools of success and blessing. Not power, not charisma. Submission, obedience, alignment. And so Isaiah asks, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord does not weary. He doesn't fail to know. He doesn't fail to understand. His system does not change for you, nor will it change for me. So the call then is for us to change to God's system. If God stands above the nations, Christian, if they are all temporal, if they will fade as a leaf and blow away, then what about my own priorities, my own weaknesses, my own capacities? My, what, what, what about those things? Your success, Christian, cannot be rooted in self-sufficiency or in self-righteousness or in self-aggrandizement. Your strength, your capacities, even young men in all of their strength will stumble and fall. These things will burn like the rest. They're temporal. Bring it home. Bring this concept home to your heart. But they that wait upon the Lord, their strength will not fail. Shall renew their strength? Let the brother of low degree, James chapter 1, verse 9 says, rejoice in that he is exalted. To share in eternal glory, to share in eternal life, to mount up with wings as eagles, to run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. The fruit of the humble submission to the great God is an eternal weight of glory. And this is why we're here. To join with God not only in life, but life more abundantly through the victorious work of Jesus Christ. The one of whom the voice cried in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. The one of whom is the glory of God revealed from heaven. And we await his sure return, do we not? He's coming again. And his rewards are with him. And he will finally make an end to sin and suffering and make all things new. And I pray today that you share in this hope. That you have that hope of eternity through Jesus Christ. See, because we're not born with this hope. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That we are born into this life of sin, separated from God. That's what the word death means in the Bible, separation. The wages of sin is death. Because you have sinned and because I have sinned, we are in a natural state of separation from a holy God. God is great. We've seen that today. Man is nothing. We've seen that today. How is it that a sinful man can be reconciled to a great and holy God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved you so much, recognizing that there's no way you or I could, could pay for our own sin. There's no way that we could undo what has been done. So God sent his son to live a perfect life. And at the end of a perfect life, where he was never once separated from God, where he never once did that which was contrary to the nature, the character, or the will of God, he gave his life to die on the cross. And in doing so, the Bible says that the Father made his Son to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God poured out his wrath and his punishment for sin on his Son. 
that those who come to Christ for forgiveness might receive it by virtue of the fact that the price has already been paid. So Jesus died on the cross, and three days later, the Bible says he rose again from the grave. In that he died, he became the propitiation for our sins. In that he rose from the grave, he solidified, proved, validated his power over sin, over death, over hell. So that all who will come to him, not only will he in no wise cast out, but he can give them eternal life. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. If you've never done that today, as Isaiah said in verse 27, why sayest thou my way is hid from the Lord? If you've been living, passing off as though your way is hid from the Lord, as though you are a child of the living God when you are not, as though you, 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 you have a relationship with God when you do not, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If today you know that you need that relationship, that you need that reconciliation, that you need Christ to forgive you of your sins, would you make today the day that you would call out unto the Lord, acknowledge your sinfulness, acknowledge that there is nothing that you can do in yourself to save you from your sins, Acknowledge that Jesus did for you what you cannot do for yourself and accept that gift for yourself. And the scriptures say, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now all of this being said, we cannot simply live this life completely ignorant of its own implications because of the promises of eternity. We live in light of eternity. We live for eternity, but we must still live in this time and place, mustn't we? And it is for this reason that I felt it important to preach this message today because of the time and the place in which we live. These are troubling and fearful days. Not to the level that many around the world experience as a regular course of events. We're not having to hide from authorities lest they put us in re-education camps as... Stella is having to do right now. But these are troubling and fearful days. Not to the level of entire civilizations that have endured throughout the scope of history tremendous levels of evil, but in context, relatively speaking, troubling days nonetheless. And while the ultimate comfort of Isaiah 40 rests in the days of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they hold within their passage a great hope for us today. And so in clothing, closing, I want to allow the scriptures that we just read to speak into this moment in history. I'm going to read you a select number of verses from that which we just studied. Verse 15 of Isaiah 40. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. They are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. Verse 17. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. Verse 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. We live in one of the greatest nations to ever grace the face of this earth. Historically, there's no debate about that. Culturally, there is, but historically, there's not. Yet as every other great nation, so too we will have our day 
and then as a flower we will fade. We are not but a drop of a bucket and counted as the small dust of the balance. This week's decisions will be made concerning the future of this country. That's fine. But no one decision will alter anything that truly matters. The Lord will still sit upon the circle of the earth. The Lord's plan will continue, maybe faster, maybe slower, but it will continue and it will not be thwarted, Christian. God's kingdom will come. God's will will be done. And one day every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Write it down. It's written down. It will happen. Naturally, you and I are concerned about our nation and the future of this country for the sake of our lives, the future of our children. But don't allow these things to trouble your heart to an undue degree, Christian. Don't allow these things to keep you up at night, to fundamentally alter your mood. Because God is still on the throne. He was on the throne yesterday. He's on the throne today. He'll be on the throne tomorrow and the next day and even the day after that. He'll still be there next Sunday. And he'll still be there when we are no more. He'll still be there when this nation is no more. Until the day when God will melt this terrestrial ball with a fervent heat and make all things new. So the psalmist would say of the nations in Psalm 2, verses 2 through 4, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. The evil men and women of this nation may threaten you. They may hold you in contempt and seek to strip you of your dignity and your value in the eyes of society. But they are of no threat to our eternity. They are of no threat to eternal values. They are of no threat to your God. They have no power to strip you of any eternal weight of glory. And as a matter of fact, they may be able to be the means by which you get a little more. So as we step into this week, let us do so with perspective. Some things may change, some things may not. All things, however, do change in time, don't they? All things break down, all things decay, all things that begin also end. And in this eternal perspective, the events of this week will have very little relevance. We may see the furthering of God's mercy, we may see the advancement of Antichrist's kingdom. But one way or another, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So let us determine to keep our hope and our expectation in his proper place. Only God saves. Kings cannot save. Politicians cannot save. Laws cannot save. Justices cannot save. Cultures cannot save. God saves. And none of those other things I just mentioned can thwart him in any way, in any shape, or in any form. 
and they that wait upon the Lord, it is they whose strength will be renewed. Let us be among them this week. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.